We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. And all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Noah Healy, founder of Cordisk an alternative market algorithm called the Coordinated Discovery Market, or CDM. Noah refers to himself as a recreational mathematician, part of a tradition of thinkers going back centuries, interested in thinking about mathematical questions. He studied a wide variety of subjects at the University of Virginia, focusing on engineering and economics, but always anchored by an interest in math. He became interested in applying his curiosity to problems inherent in the current economic markets and proposes that we need to now change the algorithm that forms the basis of our current market economy. Currently, Noah explains, the market operates as an information and communication system. However, there is a lot of noise in that system. A healthy market processes signals to reduce noise, but that is not currently happening. In fact, he says the noise in the market is off the scales. The basic problem is that with the rise of computerization, industries have vastly increased their ability to be more efficient. But the cost of that efficiency is that one error in the system can lead to a catastrophe. It also fosters the rampant corruption in now see in our economy. While Noah acknowledges he's still in the early stages of promoting this idea, there's been a lot of receptivity to it because even those businesses that are in the quote-unquote status quo are seeing that problems are structural and can't be simply papered over, quote-unquote. This episode just scratches the surface of a much bigger idea, but it is packed with some food for thought on what's at stake and offers some solutions on how we might reinvent our economy. Now, let's get better together. Noah Healy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. There's been some trials and tribulations this week, and uh, we won't get into any of that. But I'm just happy you showed up. That's really cool. <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, you're the CEO, founder of CoreDisc, which is a coordinated discovery market for commodities, which I have known nothing about. And I'm interested in because I'm interested in markets. I'm interested in efficiency. You're also a mathematician. So you know way more than I do about all that sort of stuff. But what I find interesting about folks trying to sort out like more efficient markets and trying to like really be what ultimately should happen in the world, because a lot of markets are one, they're not efficient and two, they're not fair. I mean, that's just pretty much obvious if you just sort of dig into it a little bit. So that's why I'm super curious about what you're doing over at the company, you know, Cordisk. Um, but before we do that, as I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Uh, well, 
I, uh, I figured this out um, essentially by accident. Uh, as, as you said, I am a mathematician. I'm a recreational mathematician. Uh, my interest is computational mathematics. Um, that is the mathematics of information, communication, and functions. Uh, and I was working on open problems in that space that turn out to have a great deal of applicability in economics, uh, specifically market structure and market design. Um, and that's what really kicked this into gear for me. Um, I, I, think about these things because I'm interested in thinking about these things. And sometimes you get a practical application, but, you know, 99 times out of 10, it's just some beautiful idea. Uh, but those, those like little loose wires are, are real doozies sometimes. And what you were just talking about there with markets being unfair and out of whack. Um, once I was doing the research historically on how market structures work and also comparatively of how modern markets function compared to how my system design functions. Um, that's when I figured out that actually modern technology, specifically computer technology and communication, impairs the algorithm that underlies the marketplaces that we use to work out what prices should be to guide our economies. And that's a serious disaster. Um, and so with the only known proposition for repairing that disaster, uh, I basically drafted myself into this of, you know, I want to live in a world that has an economy. Um, I don't, none of us can, <laughs> and I've got this thing that, that might get us there. So I've got to, I got to go out there and figure out how to build this thing, get it into the public consciousness, make it work and, and get it out there um, for that basically. So, wow. Um, hmm. <laughs> Where do I start? Uh, you said you were a recreational mathematician. What, I have never heard of that term. What does that mean? Uh, it's it's not terribly uncommon. Um, Sudoku is is a very oh. common puzzle yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. type of thing. Right. Now, my personal interest isn't in puzzles so much, so I don't get into that. Um, uh, I really should look up more of the details because I can't remember most of them, but uh, one of the most sort of famous promulgators of recreational math in the 20th century was this guy named Martin Gardner, who used to write a article to close out games magazine. And in the, I think it was the sixties, he wrote about um, repeated patterns, basically planes, tessellations uh, that were possible. Uh, these are essentially shapes that you can put down on a flat surface and repeat over and over again forever. There are, it's been known since the ancient Greeks that there are only three regular shapes that do this, the square, the equilateral triangle, the equilateral hexagon. But there are other kinds of shapes that you can sort of flip around and make repeated patterns out of. And at the time that he wrote the article, uh, the number of known patterns to humanity was somewhere in the low teens. And there was a uh, housewife from California is how I've always heard the story told that uh, decided that this was an interesting thing to think about. She invented her own notation and she wrote him a letter about a year later that he then sort of published. And she got the number into the high teens all by herself. Um, and it's, I, I saw uh, topologists kind of do this a little bit. It's, it's hard to come up with completely new, totally unknown patterns. Um, but uh I believe the number is currently in the high twenties and, and we don't like, we don't know what the actual number is, right, like right, right. how many there are. So if, if you're interested in little sort of patterns, sliding together stuff, um, <laughs> there, nobody has any useful value for that, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, well, well, yeah, I mean, this is like the coastline problem, 
I don't know if you're familiar with uh, yes, that. Yes, yes. Uh, coming up with uh, uh, new deep dives into fractals is another thing that, yep. that some people like to do. Um, probably the single most valuable piece of recreational math in human history uh, was uh, the work that was done in the 19th century on very large primes, um, which was done for absolutely no discernible reason of any kind. Uh, and then in the 70s, right, um, it was worked out that you could use this to create secure digital communication. And yeah, that's, encryption. Yeah, that's yeah. how secure digital communication works. Large right prime now. numbers. Right, I know, <laughs> I know. That's pretty cool. Like large prime, large prime numbers are very important, as well as uh, random numbers too, which truly random numbers, which I always found fascinating because there was an article, uh, Cloudflare, which is everyone's pretty much through the internet uses Cloudflare to for their security and you know all their proxies and stuff and. I, I read this article about how Cloudflare makes a random number. Oh, they've and, got the they've got the wall of lava lamps. Wall of lava lamps. And I'm like, yep. this is the coolest thing ever. It's like they take a picture of this wall of lava lamps, lava lamps. and that's their random number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That's... And because you know, machines making a random number, they're really truly not random, I think. Apparently there's some math. Well, so the the kinds of the kinds of numbers that are generally generated by your machine are what's known as pseudo-random. And that right. also gets into some of the research around large primes and uh, uh, some other things. The zeta function has been used as a pseudo-random generator. Um, the, it, it would theoretically be possible um, using quantum gate states uh, to put very high quality randomness on chips. Uh, and I'm not a hundred percent sure why no chip manufacturers do that but well i used to be NSA. a semiconductor guy so uh <laughs> i sort of know a little bit about why that's harder to do right but yeah yeah no it's fascinating it's so fascinating and the reason why i bring this up is because you know this whole recreational math sort of citizen science which is something that i've actually started to think a little bit more about and actually look into because now the world has a lot of access to compute power and to sensors and to just the collective hive mind, right? Where you could actually do some good science as a citizen. And there's the best example of this is like Purple Air, which is a website where you can buy a uh, air quality monitor and install it. And if you look at Purple Air, it's got like, I don't know how many thousands upon thousands of these things, right? And it's interesting because what's fun about that, if you're a geek like me, like, you know, I have an engineering degree, so I love this sort of stuff. And someone like you, who's like, I'm just interested in this sort of thing. And it leads to something, right? Like it clearly led to you really thinking about this free market problem or like fair market problem, which I think is so fascinating. And that's, I think, one of the things that entrepreneurs are really good at, even, even ones that are like, well, I'm not really an entrepreneur, but I'm curious, right? And so this curiosity that you have, right? It, it Were you this way as a kid? I mean, I think you, don't you have a degree in like uh, nuclear engineering? <laughs> well, something? so something like uh, that. the nuclear engineering department was actually closed by the time I got to college. So I've oh, got okay. an engineering science degree, mm -hmm. um, but I, I took some classes in nuclear engineering. I got a fellowship to take a year of graduate school uh, in the nuclear engineering department that was closing down around me. I, I call what I got the mad scientist degree because engineering <laughs> is defined by the electives that you get to take. Mm -hmm. um, and so my electives were things like system design, uh, reactor safety, uh, radiation detection, robotics, uh, genetics, relativity, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I, and I also took a lot of classes on uh, decision analysis, operations research, fluid dynamics, uh, complex functions, you name it. So I, I basically just wandered around UVA and took 
a lot of math classes all over the place for a long time, actually. I, I started at UVA while I was still in high school because wow. it's my hometown. And uh, they would sort of, if you finish a course of study, they'd, they'd send you over there to keep going. So Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I found what's also interesting is a lot of physicists go into economics and finance. And I think it's because of the, because I remember I, I, well, I did take a lot of physics as an electrical engineer, especially in semiconductor physics and semiconductors and atomic physics and relativity and all that sort of magic that is like, oh, it's a particle. It's a wave. Oh, maybe not. Who knows? Right. Um, And, but, but what's interesting is that the application of those kind of math and science and physical sciences to like economics, um, obviously back then computer science was just starting out. And even though there was really no degree in computer science, they just started it. It was like electrical engineering and computer science. And then computer science moved to its own little thing because right. the computer science guys are like, why don't I take all this electronic stuff? I just want to write code. <laughs> right. I don't want to build them. <laughs> I don't want to build them. You know, I was like, this is crazy, right? Why, why do I need to take, you know, fields and waves and no, you know, Gauss and all that stuff? You know, the, why do I care? Like, I'm just writing bits, right? But what's interesting about like, and I always term this as sort of crossover, right? Always interesting things happen and interesting problems get solved when there's two disciplines that cross over. They're almost like they splice together. So physics and economics, biology and semiconductors was another one, which is super fascinating. So I'm curious. Well, that's if, if that's why I've always really focused on mathematics because mm. mathematics is you know, in the Venn diagram of where things cross over, everything that's inside that, that intersection point is always math. Um, yeah. There's always some math in it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when you're looking for those sorts of opportunities, um, that's, I think that's the tool that will, will let you read and write and think about these things appropriately. And I, I, my, sense is that the the sort of rocket scientist phase of marketplaces is actually what's causing the problem to really exacerbate because they're viewing the markets in a in a sort of naturalistic sense that that there's some nature out there the markets are sort of part of nature and and we're just playing the game and and money is the the sort of counter the more money you make the more good you're doing um and if you view the marketplace as a communications device uh which is a much more accurate metaphor for what's going on. Um, the value of the market goes back to what Adam Smith was talking about with the invisible hand, where if a society has access to common knowledge information, then individuals can form their own plans, which will fit together appropriately with the plans other individuals are making and create this complex, variegated you know, society that's robust and wealthy. Uh, whereas if that doesn't happen, that we won't have a complex variegated society that is robust or wealthy. Um, and in the 20th century, we got to see some pretty horrifying examples of exactly that happening. Um, totally. So as a communication system, um, what's basically going on is... Uh, signal processing for noise reduction. You've mm-hmm. got people br- putting in price signals that contain some amount of useful information, um, maybe none, maybe maybe lots, and some amount of noise. Uh, and what the system is trying to do is filter out as much of the noise as possible and provide this sort of clean data stream that we can now run an economy on. Uh, Unfortunately, because of how the system works with incentive structure, the more noise that there is to process out of the system, the more money there is to make for 
the the rocket scientist types who are who are operating these these you know middleman lever stuff and so what's happened particularly with computerization both of the marketplaces and also of humanity in general is that the noise level in the markets is off the scale yeah um it's a lot of noise now fortunately we're also vastly more productive because we're a computerized society as well. Um, but effectively, that that gain is just being chewed up by this less efficient system. And there's no strong reason to believe that the efficiency, the inefficiencies are picking up at the same rate that general social efficiency is improving. In fact, we should expect the other way to go um, because every gain of inefficiency by the marketplace creates a greater discoordination and a lowered total, you know, operational effectiveness of the economy. Uh, so it's not it's not sort of a fair game. It's this sort of ratcheting, you know, thing where we just slide it all over the table and 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 you know, the winners wind up winning. So from that perspective, actually the entire system requires an algorithmic rethink from the word go based on the incentives that are involved, because it's not enough to basically just say, oh, you know, these markets aren't working out so well. Let's just start over again. You know, maybe it's just the Maybe it's just these people or these regulations that we have. Well, even if it were practical in any sense to build a completely parallel set of institutions, um, which is sort of what the blockchain people are trying to do, right? right. Um, you'd still you'd still be stuck with these algorithms that would be encouraging this behavior that isn't actually in the interests of the customers that are ultimately paying for the, for the stuff, and so. That's that's where a much deeper think uh, is needed. Yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to the guy who wrote *Sapiens* on on Sam Harris the other day. Yo- Yoel, I think, is his name. Historian, like, thinks deeply about this sort of stuff. And I'm, I remember they were talking about blockchain, and they're like, "Well, you know, do we really need trust in the world if the blockchain exists?" And what's really funny is that he's just like, oh, you always need trust in institutions and you need institutions because institutions are what people, if we're going to create a society, there has to be trust and trust is in institutions. And just because it's more efficient, like to your point, like now it's on the blockchain, you can try it. Well, still, there may be a need to be a rethink of it. And he he had this great example of uh, religion. Like he's like, well, look, before there were a printing press and books, there was the local cantor, the local rabbi that, you know, you didn't know if you're what you were getting. Like, is this real or not real? Then they had books like, right. Here's the Bible. Here's the Quran. Here's the, the Talmud, right? Here it is. But still someone had to interpret what that meant. Right. And so then there was still had to be trust in the institution of, as this example of the Jewish church or, the, uh, the Oman or the, you know, Christian um, priest or whatever. So trust seems to be a pretty fundamental thing. And to your point about like, it's not a fair, markets are not a fair game now. And you, you can see that because there's correction. There's it's all like, why do all these corrections happen? Well, clearly someone gained it to the point where their shenanigans came to light. If, if it was a free and open market, pure Adam Smith, invisible hand, where it was the rational actor, corrections would not happen at the catastrophic level they happen at. And you can also see this in the interconnected economy when it comes to like now the war with Russia or with Ukraine and Russia, like global supply chain during the pandemic, the global supply chain, what's that mean, right? Well, some shenanigans somewhere that, you know, there was single points of failure and boom, done. Right. Well, that, you know, that gets to the issue of things like uh, cascade failures or mm-hmm. normal accidents. I don't know mm-hmm. if, if uh, you ever encountered that in your engineering training. Oh, but. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to do these things called FMEAs, failure mode effect analysis. 
because if it was some sort of mission critical thing, especially military electronics, they're like, sure, what could go wrong? And you're like, well, what do you mean by what could go wrong? It's like list everything. If this circuit or whatever, we did this with, with when you had to do a 510k FDA filing as well. Yeah. What, what are the failure modes of this thing's going to happen and how, one, how are you going to detect it? And two, catastrophic, non-catastrophic. Because let's just say, best example, like let's say you had a failure, but you didn't know it. Like everything <laughs> downstream, like in DNA, we, I used to do this DNA sequencing chip. If, if there's a systematic error that no one finds and you're like sequencing and sequencing and sequencing, just thinking, oh, well, there's just some anomaly that just ripples through the entire world. I sure. Mean, it's like, so sure. yeah, you have to, have to think if there's that. no check at the original, you know, thing, right. Right. you're looking for somebody with blue eyes when, when the guy's got green eyes and the, 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 you'll never, ever figure that out. hundred percent, hundred percent. So, so fascinating. I'm sure most people will be like, Oh, what are these guys talking about? But I find this interesting because, um, a couple of things. One is entrepreneurs, right? You, you even said it best yourself. Like, look, everything kind of in the Venn diagram comes down to math, maths and everything. One, true. The intersections of where things cross over, different disciplines cross over is where the magic happens, in my opinion, is where innovation happens way more and more. Um, and as entrepreneurs, when we see these opportunities, like you have a, have a, huge quantum problem to solve, i.e. we need to redo the entire financial. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of pushback. <laughs> there's there's definitely been some pushback. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of, so this is the thing about like entrepreneurship, right? It's often the case that the status quo does not want you to succeed, even if your idea is better because there's some inherent bias. There's an inherent ballast. The status quo is always going to fight you on this. And this is what I'm really curious about when it comes to what you're trying to do. You, you know, you are trying to solve a problem that's fundamental to how economies work. It's the economy is not free. It's not fair. Even you've mentioned regulations. Regulations are actually for the big people. When people say, oh, regulation, we need more deregulation. Well, Sort of and not sort of, right? Depends I on who like you are. I don't like the phrase deregulation. I like the phrase re-regulation. Right, because you're right. If it's a control system, you're not. You need to regulate it in, in a different way. Like, and no people get that, right? Especially depending what side of the spectrum. And I say spectrum is in political spectrum. Right. Some of those people are on the spectrum to um, make those other people that really are in the spectrum look look bad, right? But it's funny because. Yeah, they, there's these nuances and the thought process. And so how are you going about trying to, I mean, this is a pretty bold idea. I mean, it's, you know, markets are a communications medium. They're not a money medium or I, I butcher it, but like, how do you go on about like getting the word out and championing this idea? Uh. Well, there's been sort of a few different initiatives and several different fronts. Um, uh, I'm working on a patent. Uh, I'm doing a lot of personal networking. Uh, I try to get conversations together to to improve the kind of materials that I have um, for for various things of communications. I've got, you know, a dozen or so decks that have have been produced over the last few years. Um, Some other demo-y stuff trying to put together. Uh, I'm now doing podcasts. So (laughs) I've I've been on like a couple of dozen of these things. Oh, wow. Uh, Wow. Great. Try to get, try to get the word out um, kind of any way I can. Um, And I've got a few irons out in the fire now uh, that are in early stage, you know, fundraising or, or a little bit of interest about that. Um, and I'm really just sort of pushing out, looking for where the chink in the wall will wind up being of whether that's uh, 
an existing market that fails or a new market opportunity that wants wants a sort of lower cost of entry uh, or an adaptation of the technology to some sort of other kind of index or dark pool or something like that. Um, and just where, where I can find it. And so um, I, I call my strategy uh, energetic serendipity. Um, you have to accept that luck is always the first part of success. Um, and, and so you have to make those opportunities and prepare for it. But, um, you know, if, uh, if a lottery ticket never falls on you, then, then that's, that, that happens to lots of people and, <laughs> and you'll just be another one of them. Um, one thing that, that keeps me, you know, in the game and going for this, uh, is that the status quo, while I do get a lot of pushback when I talk to these people, um, they're, they're being chewed up possibly even more quickly than sort of the, the outsides are. Uh, and the kinds of problems that I see existing there are structural ones that are not the kinds of things that they're going to be able to paper over. And so just, just in the last, you know, month or so with like the Ukraine situation and the global supply chain situation, you know, the nickel markets in London just had to shut down so that the largest maker of stainless steel in the world wouldn't be completely liquidated. Wow. Now, Wow. I mean, it's entirely possible that yeah. that we don't need as as a society the amount of stainless steel that we're making and that they should be liquidated. Maybe. Like I don't know because the markets don't work. So I, I don't have any price information to make any of these judgments. Um but Goldman Sachs decided to step into the gap and announced that they would uh, buy nickel for $25,000 a ton or sell it for $37,000 a ton. So that's a 48% markup on commodity product. That's insanity, basically. Um, yeah, I heard, I heard people are, and this was anecdotal, I heard people are warehousing actual nickels. <laughs> Because apparently a nickel is worth more than a nickel. <laughs> that's that's a thing that's occurred um, at several times in the past. There was a there was some point uh, during I believe it was the Napoleonic era where um, the gold franc uh, actually had less than one franc's worth of gold in it or, or, wow. or no, the other way around more than one gold's worth of francs in it. And so you could, you could take francs and just beat them into bars and then sell the bars for more money than the money that you had to, you had to use up. So Crazy. those sorts of, those sorts of weird backwards systems happen. Um, but also agriculturally, um, most people, although sadly not everybody, eats food from basically where they're from. Um, and Ukraine, while they're a per capita enormous wheat producer, for example, um, 90 plus percent of the wheat on earth is grown not in the Ukraine. So right, right. There's, it's not like there's no food anymore just because that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, what we should expect to see with rising prices would be wheat farmers in the, the West and the South seeing higher valuations that they could get. Right. But because the markets are so good at sort of chewing those, those things up, the price signals aren't getting through all the way. Right. Um, and so 
the the farmers have mostly locked in, you know, sort of what their pricing looks like because they have to. Yes. Because if they don't, the banks would the call bank their loans in. Alone. Right. 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 And so they can't. They can't. They can't respond. You know, if they if they go grow more wheat, they can't grow more wheat. The prices of their inputs are going up. They'd have to get a bank loan on unsecured wheat that they can't. They haven't already sold. So yeah, it's, they're not going to ridiculously. So weird. the shortage, in some sense, is going to be manufactured. Now, I don't think it'll be as severe as say things like the potato famine, where Ireland was in fact exporting wheat during the potato famine because Russia, same way, Russia yes. was, during their famine, they were exporting. I don't know what I think made it might've been weed or potatoes. There was something where they're like, hold on, hold on, stop. Your people are starving yet. You're exporting the food away because you, you want to appear quote unquote, that communism works and people are dying. Like millions of people are dying. I'm, I'm a wealthy, powerful, amoral sociopath and it's my food and, and I can eat all the, you know, I've got all the food I need to eat right? and I could sell these tons and tons of food for more money or I could give it to these starving people. Yeah. What would I want to do in this situation? Well, if I'm Stalin, (laughs) then maybe I make the wrong choice. A hundred percent. I mean, even with the, with the oil markets is another thing. It's like, okay, war happens. Why does oil prices go up? Russia is an oil producer. And of course there's dynamics to that, but it's, I don't think it's, well, it's interesting that it's so, it seems so much more out of whack than what it would normally be. Right. And, right. and, and that's all the speculation. And well, and the other yeah. Thing. And that, that gets into the issue again of the markets are not doing their job of noise cancellation Correct. properly. And yeah. under circumstances, we're sort of, you're in some kind of equilibrium and things aren't really changing that much. You don't notice the fact that markets aren't actually buffering out, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. mistakes and errors and so on. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, Texas has a cascade failure and some people get electrical bills for $10,000 for a right. month. Right, 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 um, right, right. I actually <laughs> interviewed a guy from Energy Ogre. He, uh, it's his, his company. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. His company helped people understand the Texas energy market and consumers like find their which one. And so I'm like, okay, tell me what the heck went wrong. Cause I mean, you're an expert, like he's on the ground there. Right. And he's like, well, look, this is sort of what happened. And yeah, we had, that needed actually more regulation to your point, because it's insane. And of course, the, the what's interesting is that they had regulations. They, some of them weren't followed in terms of the grid management because there was this thing you mentioned, cascading failures. I mean, it was like butter side down four times in a row. <laughs> Crazy. Right. Well, and and that's one of the things that we've done in the last generation, basically. Uh, computers came in. There were some big efficiency gains. Business said, oh, computers equals efficiency gains. Let's just keep gaining efficiency. Right. There's sort of two good ways to gain efficient, well, two ways really to gain efficiency. The first one's really hard, and that is coming up with a better algorithm. And the second one is really easy, and that is reducing redundancy. Um, and redundancy reduction is great right up until the moment when anything goes wrong. Uh, and, and so that's where you get these kinds of, not just a single point of failure, but like a network of single failure points where, um, you know, because, because a boat has a navigational error in the wrong place. I I remember like. Literally, that was like so classic. Like, oh, the Suez Canal is blocked for two weeks. For two weeks. The world weeks. ends. The world yeah, ends. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like, you know, and now now like ice cream doesn't work the way you thought it worked because 
but wait, like ice cream, oh, wait, don't they just more. make that like at the factory? Yeah. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, because they get something from over there and they've yeah. got a part that was made on the other side of the planet. And or, or it was or, in the Indian Ocean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the, the other thing that was interesting, like during the pandemic, they had all of these boats, these ships off the coast of Long Beach. Just right. They're just there. And you're like, OK, hold on. Stop. What's wrong? Like, why can't they get unloaded? And there was. Oh, I don't remember. There was some economic things going on, like they wanted more money, COVID, the whole thing. But they're literally hanging out, right? And then from a market perspective, I think it was Texas that said, we'll come to Texas. We'll unload it. I mean, Long Beach to Texas through the Panama Canal is pretty huge. Like, right. like that was an option. And you're kind of like, I don't, you just smack your head. And it's interesting because you're right. The it's like these perverse incentives, not full, you know, invisible hand, full disclosure on the market, because it's baked in that way. I mean, it's just that's the way. I mean, it's developed that way because there's powerful forces like money and market makers, quote unquote, that you know. They'd have tried to figure out, to your point, reducing the amount of redundancy to the point of cascading failures. I mean, you know, in the startup world, everyone's all about reducing friction. Like, oh, I want someone to be able to sign up with an email. Like, there's friction reduction to get more people to sign or click or whatever. The other thing that, that, that I've always found fascinating is the adding friction back to if it's a control system to have a feedback loop so that you can govern this thing that if there's only like, what was the, 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 the seven, the max, the Boeing seven, three, seven max. Or yeah, Super, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Right. The, 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 they changed, they changed around the engine configuration and then they were just like, you don't need to see our, our specs and safety. Well, this, this was the, I saw and, the documentary. You saw the documentary yeah, in this. And it's it was just like, insane. it would, it would take off and it'd be like, uh, maybe I should just dive straight into the ground now. And, and that's what would happen. So you, you, but I remember like they're going through what this thing did. And I, I used to fly small planes when I was like 18, 18 to 20. Right. And I'm sitting there looking at this control system. And I know a little, obviously went, and it's like, there's a single point of failure. If that attitude control on the front brakes, it thinks you're in whatever. Right. And there is no way that pilot is, you, he even could turn the thing off and still couldn't do it because right, like yeah, the, yeah. The, the pilot jack- and co-pilot dragging <laughs> off the thing as hard as they can. Yeah. And yeah. the damn because the damn, you know, jack screw in the back of this thing is just completely slammed, right? And you sit there and you go, what a one, what a perfect, unfortunately, tragic analogy for how single points of failure, cascading failure, none of this redundancy governing, like again, from, from the analogy of an economy. We see that more and more because, to your point, we've got all these computers that basically speed up the amount of errors we can make <laughs> without redefining the algorithm, right? Like, right, a better algorithm. So, wow, just insane. Just well, you know, I wish you so much luck in trying to figure this out. I mean, what a what a fascinating problem to solve and so interesting how you came about to do it. You know, I think it's really powerful to have these sort of ideas, of course, like blockchain and like, you know, crypto and everything like that took time to build it up. But I'm curious if there's any indications from the crypto, you know, how crypto is being adopted and how, what your work, because they seem there's some parallels, but not some parallels. There, there are some parallels and actually historically speaking, there are parallels as well. Um, the system that we use today was developed in Northern Italy just before the Renaissance. And it's reasonable to credit the Renaissance to the development of this system because what happened was uh, Constantinople at the time was the, the head of Mediterranean trade, which is entirely reasonable because by controlling the Black Sea Mediterranean Pass, uh, you know, Napoleon called Constantinople 
the capital of the world. Um, it's the most strategically important point in Europe um, or in Asia Minor or whatever. Uh, and so they were still the Eastern Roman Empire at that point. They were called the Roman Empire. There's none of this, you know, Constantinople jazz. Uh, they, they were unbelievably wealthy because the trade all anchored there. And then these Italians we believe by accident worked out that if you just kind of chalked up on a board, the deals that people had just made in public, then you could get this better pricing structure together. And as a result of that, in spite of the fact that Northern Italy wasn't on the way to anywhere and didn't have the biggest navies in the world, um, everybody figured out that if you were selling spice or cloth or, you know, wheat or anything, go there. Prices are better, better information. Um, so at, at the end of the day, throughout history, better information has always wins the economic battle. Uh, and that's the, it's either cost of capital or better information is just always dominant. And that's, that's why right now the London Metals Exchange and the CME group are between the two of them essentially own all of the benchmark markets on earth. Um, and if, you know, Chicago and Paris disagree about the price of butter, it's because, you know, the French are wrong about butter and they'll just change because, because the benchmarks in Chicago. Um, and that's just how it is. But since this system actually offers the opportunity for a better information system, once it gets going, um, there's no practical way for the existing system to compete against it. And I'd expect that just as, you know, what the, the iPhone was like the fastest product rollout in human history or something, um, the communication networks that we have that are, that are sort of grinding our existing, you know, medieval, literally medieval infrastructure up in in the the speed and power that they have um will be the conduit that this can spread to the four corners of the earth uh and and i fully expect it to do so wow well noah thanks for your time man what a what a fascinating discussion i'm sure people will be like oh wow that's pretty heavy but good good to have these things think outside the box think things new good luck with everything you're doing and uh yeah stay safe yeah yeah you too thanks noah for the awesome interview insightful and mind-bending at the same time wow haven't really dug that deep into mathematical things in gosh in a long time so really appreciate it as promised here are some actionable insights that i learned from my insightful interview with noah Noah refers to his strategy of entrepreneurship as energetic serendipity. This view acknowledges the role that luck and opportunity play when putting out a new idea, but at the same time, stresses the importance of putting yourself in the way of opportunities and being prepared to take advantage of them. Now, we've talked about this before. I always bring it up. A lot of entrepreneurship is just luck. People get lucky. Yeah, a lot of hard work, a lot of hard skill, all that. It's a lot of luck, right? You really only control the effort you put into something. The outcome is almost random, almost random. So when you're thinking about, hey, how come I'm not successful? How come this isn't working that way or that way? Ask a few of these questions. Am I taking more shots on goal? Am I doing more things, right? How lucky do I need to be? i.e. what positions do I have to put myself in in order to find the luck? Because luck does come to you and you actually can increase your luck. So think about that. Noah notes that two ways to improve the system are to become more efficient or to redo the algorithm. While most businesses focus on the first, he's focusing on the second. Becoming more efficient has its own risks and limits because of the potential for problems when an error is introduced. And <laughs> we talked a little bit about supply chains, which is everyone on everyone's mind, and these things called single points of failure, which clearly in the supply chain we have. I mean, that one boat blocked the Suez Canal. Global trade is 
completely shut down or a virus gets out into the world and Maersk's complete system goes down. Maersk is like one of the top shipping companies in the world. So, um, yeah, you, you, efficiency is fine and, you know, reducing friction is okay, except when that can get out of hand. So we're always as entrepreneurs trying to reduce friction. Well, in some processes, it's important to increase friction. Those are the checks and balances. So ask yourself a couple of questions when it comes to this. This mostly may be in your own business, right? What friction can I put in that's going to make sense and add value, right? Not all friction is created equal. So as an example, in order to like transfer money out of your bank account, you probably want to have a couple of steps of friction in there just to make sure you're doing the right thing. Or conversely, you want to reduce friction for people to sign up for your product-led growth company, right? Um, so you just got to play with friction. Friction, both reduction and increasing friction is an important thing to think about. Don't discount the val- discount, excuse me, the value of simple curiosity, solving problems and asking questions for its own sake. One example Noah gives is how a mathematician in the 19th century who worked on large prime numbers never saw any purpose for it, but it's now become the backbone of computer security. Yeah, you need very big prime numbers in order to do all the encryption algorithms, so just an FYI. But yeah, I mean... Curiosity is an important thing. I think it is very much discounted for, oh, we want a growth app. What's the ROI on this and et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, sure, metrics are important, but just being curious is really, really valuable because it shows you the path that maybe people don't look at. So ask yourself the questions of as like, what am I curious about? How does that apply to my business? How can I increase my curiosity for the sake of curiosity, right? Not just for the sake of getting stuff done, making more money or whatever, but just explore. Again, be curious. Well, there you have it. The actionable insights that I got from my awe-inspiring and mind-bending interview with Noah. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.